0: It's impossible to know the first time any animal was seen by a human being. It is a mystery that we cannot have the answer to. Recorded history can only go back so far, and at a certain point, there is no way to truly know. Who knows when a black bear was first seen, or an eagle? People thought that manatees and gorillas were mythological beings up until the last few centuries. The animal kingdom is still being explored as new animals come and go. There is no way to truly know the first time an animal was seen, but for animals that go extinct, we know at least, for certain, the last time they were seen. There's a bird called the Carolina parakeet. The last living Carolina parakeet died on February 21st, 1918. His name was Incas, and he died while in captivity at the Cincinnati Zoo. His mate, a bird named Lady Jane, had died the year earlier, and with the passing of Incas, the last Carolina parakeet was gone. Wild Carolina parakeets, as far as we know, disappeared a decade and a half earlier after being hunted to oblivion. Wild animals are hard to perfectly track, so we don't know this for absolute certainty, but it is believed that the last wild Carolina parakeet was actually killed in Okeechobee County, Florida. That was 1904, so Incas had survived another 14 years, only to be the last of his kind, in 1918, the year that World War I ended. It would be another 20 years before the Carolina parakeet was officially named extinct, but in 1939, it was over. The bird was no more. We know for certain when the Carolina parakeet vanished from this earth, and though I mentioned we don't know exactly when they were first seen, we do have a clear guess as to when the Carolina parakeet was first recorded by a European. English merchants seem to have spotted a bird, a parrot, resembling the Carolina parakeet as far back as the late 16th century. The famous Sir Walter Raleigh described seeing such a bird akin to the Carolina parakeet, and reports of American parrots were numerous at the time of European colonization. It was somewhere around 1663 that the word Carolina became associated with the bird, named for its nearness to the Carolina border with Virginia. Its range was large in those years, and many colonists noticed this bird from all the way up in Virginia, all the way down to Florida, and all the way west to Louisiana. John James Audubon himself, the namesake of the Audubon Society, saw the bird and detailed its beautiful plumage in his iconic art style. They were fairly easy to spot, with a bright green body and a vibrant yellow head with a splash of reddish orange around the eyes. Mm They weren't very large, only about a foot in length, but their color was so bright and saturated that they stood out amongst the eastern seaboard wilderness. This, however, led to their demise. It's well known that throughout the 19th century, millinery, the production of hats, took a terrible toll on the population of America's birds egrets in florida in particular faced such a drastic decrease in population that it led to an entire movement that changed the way that we treat birds and basically led to the creation of the audubon society of today but egrets were not the only bird at risk essentially any bird with gorgeous coloring was a prey for hat makers who would kill the bird pluck its feathers and attach them to a lovely hat for a high society individual mostly women but we'll come back to that The parakeets, with their gorgeous feathers, were natural targets. On top of that, agriculture left its mark. Farmers saw the birds, which traveled in flocks, to be pests to their farms and killed the animals to keep farms clear of them. If a parakeet was killed, the other parakeets would then gather around the dead body of one of the killed birds, which would then lead to their deaths. When they weren't being out and out killed, their ecosystems were being decimated to support the presence of even more farms in the country. Without trees and without land, the birds had nowhere to hide. The assault on the Carolina parakeet was full, precise, consistent, and effective. By the 20th century, the bird numbers were nearing total extinction. And what makes this story all the more upsetting is one of the figures involved. You see, around the turn of the century, part of studying birds, part of the field of ornithology, included hunting birds. Those studying them would actually kill them in order to get specimen. It's difficult to fathom, but it's true. And one hunter involved in this movement was Frank M. Chapman, the founder of the Christmas Bird Count, one of the most popular leaders of modern ornithology. He killed Carolina parakeets, one of the only parrots in North America, in the waning years of their existence. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This is the conservation season, and to get it started right, we are talking about the worst-case scenario, extinction. We're going to talk about the Carolina parakeet, Frank M. Chapman, and the conservationists throughout history who have been battling extinction for the last several centuries. Our guest this week is actually the person who introduced me to the story of Frank Chapman and the Carolina parakeet. Her name is Michelle Nyehouse, and her book Beloved Beasts is all about the history of the conservation movement and the people involved in its evolution. I was in a bit of a reading slump when I picked up Beloved Beasts. I had lost some of my momentum, and then I picked up Michelle's book. It is a fascinating historical tale of conservationists and environmentalists through the ages as the cause and the field have changed. Naturally, I had to talk to the person who wrote this book. Her name is Michelle Nyehouse.
1: Yeah, my name is Michelle Nyhaus. I'm a environmental journalist and the author of *Beloved Beasts*, a book about the modern the history of the modern conservation movement. How Michelle
0: came to writing this book is its own unique path, especially when you consider what the book is trying to teach.
1: Yeah, I was a biology major in college. Uh, I and and after college, I supported myself as a um, wildlife field tech, helping out on wildlife research projects around the desert Southwest, which were really great experiences. I mean, I saw lots of amazing places and met amazing people, but I, I was, at least as fascinated by the politics surrounding the jobs I had as I was by the science I was doing. And uh, so I, I figured out that I was pretty well suited to be a, an environmental journalist. And that's what I've been doing ever since covering uh, climate change and conservation. And uh, over time, I, I came to feel that it would be helpful and interesting to, to look back at the history of conservation, because so many of our fights over endangered species, over conservation, and just take place almost in isolation. People don't because they're focused on the the controversy or the emergency in front of them, they don't take the time to look back and say what, what what mistakes have we made in the past when we've been trying to save species and what it you know what what has worked. And I felt that trying to piece that story together as a story, which it is, um would be would just give some useful perspective to people involved in those arguments.
0: That really is what the book is about and why it was so fascinating to me. Conservationist history is so complicated and full with various characters making their own mark over the course of years. But what makes this book really interesting is that it isn't one character or one era or one subject or one animal. It also doesn't separate the eras from one another. The stories of modern conservation flow from person to person, from idea to idea.
1: Like any political movement, the conservation movement is an ecosystem of people working together and arguing and building on each other's ideas. And it's so rarely presented that way. I feel like, well, we learn about Rachel Carson. Maybe we learn about Aldo Leopold or John Muir. But we hear about these people in isolation as if they worked you know, alone and, and they didn't. They knew each other, knew of each other. and And to me, finding those connections, finding how they wittingly and unwillingly, unwittingly helped each other was really exciting. Some of them were obvious, you know, some people I knew were so well known, at least to conservationists, that I wanted to place them within the movement, like Rachel Carson, Aldo Leopold. Um, and then other people like Julian Huxley, who's less well known, he represented the turn to internationalism in the conservation movement, which broadened its focus to species in other places um, in the late 1950s, early 1960s. And Julian Huxley had a lot to do with that internationalization. And, you know, luckily, he was also a fascinating, brilliant, troubled, complicated (laughs) person, and, you know, very fun, if exhausting to write about. Um, But so he, he more represented a turning point, I came to him because I wanted to represent an idea, and he embodied that idea.
0: Julian Huxley was discussed, and I want to tell you a little about him because it's illuminative of what Michelle is talking about in her book. Julian Huxley is the brother of Aldous Huxley, the author of the famous book Brave New World. Julian was a conservationist who, through his work in London in the early part of the 20th century, made considerable strides in spreading the importance of conservationist work. He spread the good news of Darwin's theories on evolution and helped create one of the most important conservation organizations today, the World Wildlife Fund. He saw the value in preserving this world's animals and investing in their survival and care, not just in science, but in funding as well. But he had a major, major flaw in his public causes and philosophy. He spoke favorably on eugenics at several times in his career. Eugenics is defined as, quote, the selection of desired heritable characteristics in order to improve future generations, end quote. Eugenics was a major part of the platform of the Nazi party and has for generations been a central tenet of white supremacy and racism around the world. It's not as though Huxley was only speaking on ending gene pools for animals. He also talked about it in reference to the lower class in London. Huxley's good thoughts, the work he did, his important impact on the field of conservation, is deeply stained by his feelings on such an inhumane, immoral practice. Michelle's book does not shy away from these things. Conservation is a field that has changed throughout the years, and those fighting for its importance are complicated people, like most figures in history. We've talked a lot about Aldo Leopold. In Michelle's book, she details Aldo's anxiety about being a hunter himself, seeing that hunting was something he had lost any joy in. Michelle was interested in including that conservation's titans were not all flawless, not just because it was truthful, but because it is more fascinating to explore.
1: I think it's It's just more interesting to tell the full story of somebody. Uh, Nobody is perfect. Uh, Some of the people I wrote about had quite appalling flaws. Um, But, you know, everyone has flaws. And it's, I think, just makes a more interesting story to include them rather than, you know, painting a picture of... uh, We tend to deify Rachel Carson, for instance. Rachel
0: Carson wrote, Silent Spring a book that fundamentally changed the use of chemicals in farming and other practices because of the impact it was having on our ecosystem. I am one such person who deifies Rachel Carson and not just because we share a birthday. I just I'm a big fan.
1: You know, Rachel Carson did was a brilliant, amazing, changed the world. Also, you know, got mad at her publishers and you know, <laughs> was a human being. Yeah. It was was shy, you know, struggled with shyness. Like was it was it was a human being and and I think uh, we, we do ourselves a disservice by putting people up on a, a literal or metaphorical uh, pedestal and and pretending you know that no one no one like them will ever walk the earth again because uh, they they were human beings and, and their work can be continued um, by other actual human beings. <laughs> uh, but in the, as I think it was especially relevant to the conservation movement to include that history of racism and colonialism, um, it's so strong in the in the conservation movement. It's really blinded the movement to a lot of potentially productive pathways. Um, and I think that you know young climate activists are are quite aware of the history of of conservation, and and it tends to put them off. That you know they they tend to, they may not know the details, but they have a sense of oh yeah this is sort of a this is an effort of of. Wealthy white men <laughs> from the last century, which you know is true to a great extent, and and they tend to say, ah, you know, that's we're we're about climate, we're about helping people, we're about saving the planet um, in a different way, and and I and I hope that this book is a way, is one way of saying, yes, you know, those concerns you have are true, but yet there are some very valuable ideas, some of which were promulgated by these <laughs> complicated. And, People uh, that that we can take forward that are still useful to us, and we shouldn't uh, throw those out in our you know in our critique of the movement, which I think is very warranted. We shouldn't discard those ideas.
0: I'll reiterate the final statement she said there. Quote: There are some very valuable ideas, some of which were promulgated by these complicated people that we can take forward that are still useful to us. End quote. I say that again because it's time we talk about Frank M. Chapman. We discussed Frank Chapman earlier this year as we discussed bald eagles in Florida. He was a banker in New York for the early part of his professional life, but quit to pursue a career in ornithology, a field that he had developed a passion for. At the time, the late 1800s, ornithology was a field still discovering its place in the world. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, hat making had become a huge problem for the wild birds of America. Their beautiful colors made excellent decoration for a lovely lady's hat as Victorian fashion favored vibrant shades and styles. The problem was a cultural one, where naturalists like Chapman were fighting a war against style. But it was still the 1800s, so blames started to be shifted. Naturalists, who were mostly men at the time, started blaming women broadly for the problems facing birds. They weren't fighting the style or cultural issues around hunting birds. They literally blamed women. Across the country, women and their fashion preferences became known as the sole cause of bird populations dwindling – There were obviously other causes at play here, and millinery was part of the broader scope, but the blame was now firmly placed, despite the fact that women were the ones who were leading the charge to stop the hunts that were bringing in bird feathers. According to Michelle's book, Frank Chapman expresses the same anti-women sentiment, apparently giving an address titled, Woman as Bird Enemy. That's just... (laughs) It's just insane. Anyway, there was a double standard, obviously. As ornithologists, again, mostly men, sat around pointing the finger at women for the loss of bird populations nationwide, they themselves were killing birds in the name of science. Not all of them, but some. Michelle points out that these ornithologists, quote, "...regularly collected eggs from nests and shot and skinned birds for closer study, sometimes by the thousands. End quote. In the modern world, it seems obvious to us that studying animals means not killing them. In the wild, we study them at a distance and we try to keep ourselves undetected by them so as not to disturb their normal patterns of behavior. But a century ago, one of the best accepted practices for study was to kill the animal, take them in, and examine their body. Ornithologists practiced this method, including Frank Chapman. Frank Chapman, who is best known for turning the annual Christmas bird hunt into a non-violent Christmas bird count, participated in the practice of killing birds for study. As I've mentioned, he was part of the extinction of one of the few native parrot species on the continent. Chapman had spent a large portion of his life in Florida, Much of his passion for birds came from trips down here that he frequently made, but long before Chapman ever stepped foot in our state, our wild spaces were dotted by the Carolina parakeet. Its green and yellow feathers likely blended in well with our native flora, though its orange face certainly made a statement wherever it went. In all pictures I've seen of the bird, it's hard to not be a little enamored with them. There is art by John James Audubon himself, as well as a stuffed bird that has lasted all these years. There's plenty of evidence of the bird nowadays, but no living remnant, of course. As I told you, many factors played into why they began to dwindle out, and one of them was being hunted. In 1889, Frank Chapman took a trip to southeast Florida. The St. Sebastian River connects to the Indian River Lagoon a few miles north of Vero, a quiet river that today is surrounded by conservation land. Chapman admired the river, writing, quote, The Sebastian is a beautiful river. No words of mine can adequately describe it. End quote. This river is one of the last documented places on earth to have any known specimen of the Carolina parakeet. And when Chapman visited the river in 1889, he killed 15 of them. The quotes that Michelle features from Chapman at the time are Troubling. Initially, he killed nine of the birds, knowing he probably shouldn't have killed that many. He wrote as much in the book. He resolves not to kill any more, but two days later, he writes, quote, the parakeets tempted me and I fell. They also fell, six more of them, end quote. He knew entirely what the killing of 15 Carolina parakeets meant in the long term, but I don't know, maybe he didn't care. He did it anyway. The impact he was having was in his hands, and he chose to take the shots. Fifteen of a now-extinct bird, dead at the hands of the father of ornithology. A decade and a half later, in 1904, the last wild parakeets were shot in Okeechobee County, a few dozen miles southwest, the next county over from the St. Sebastian River. Fourteen years after that, the last Carolina parakeet in captivity dies, and 20 years later, they're declared extinct. There's no question. Frank Chapman killed some of the last of these animals to ever exist. The beautiful green parrot that once blended in seamlessly to the Florida forests was gone forever. We're a bit
1: numb to it now, the fact that That species are going to extinct, but, but, you know, the conservation movement got started at a time when, you know, just decades earlier within living memory, people were still convinced that species were eternal creations of God, you know, that they didn't change. Darwin disabused us of that and, (laughs) and, and also pointed out that we had been driving species extinct on isolated species extinct on, on ocean islands for a long time, but it wasn't until the passenger pigeon and the bison spiraled toward oblivion that, that societies in North America and Europe really understood, oh, okay, we can drive these abundant species to extinction through our own actions. You know, even, even through, we may not, we may not live next to them, but through our own consumer actions, we can help, we can contribute to the extinction of these species. And, and it was shocking people woken up by that and said, this is, this is outrageous. What are we, what are we doing? Um, started the movement and, and we have a lot, we have them to thank today because they, they were able to prevent some other major extinctions through their work.
0: Extinction is a mind boggling thing, something we struggle to even fathom. No one thinks of extinction with joy. Every human being understands the devastation of losing an animal of knowing they are gone Any empathetic person wears that weight on their heart. Our friend Aldo Leopold pointed out in his book, A Sand County Almanac, that we are the only species that mourns the loss of another animal. We wear that grief and no other animal does that, can do that. It's just us. We cause their extinction and we mourn their extinction. It's a painful, painful paradox, but the book that Michelle wrote, is not about the bad news. It's about those ideas, but it's about everything we've done right. Because we have done a lot right. I don't take any credit for it. There's a lot of important people who are doing the right thing all the time. Early in the book, Michelle writes that reading about the status of conservation and the climate can easily lead one into despair and anxiety about the state of the world. But she points out that there is comfort in history and how the field has progressed and how we are still improving. Quote, the past accomplishments of conservation were not inevitable and neither are its predicted failures. We can move forward by understanding the story of struggle and survival we already have and seeing the possibilities in what remains to be written." I asked Michelle why she chose to start the book with such a positive tone. Here's what she said.
1: Part of my motivation for writing the book was just a frustration with the frame through which so many environmental stories are told. I mean, we, I feel like we as environmental journalists tend to cover conservation when a species is threatened with extinction, (laughs) you know, and by then it's way too late uh, really for people, for readers to make a difference of any kind. And uh, we need to start telling more stories about the process of conservation, which really should be starting when species are still common, as many conservationists have observed, you know, but those stories about protecting land about you know sitting in meetings and agreeing with working with other people to accomplish conservation those, those stories tend to be kind of slow and not very dramatic and and we we use extinction or the threat of extinction as a as a dramatic hook way too often and i i thought perhaps by looking back at what we have done right which is actually quite a bit we' figured out a lot over the last 150 years i could tell a story that was realistic in that, you know, the threats we're facing and other species are facing are huge and and accumulating. Yet, we've done some things right. We have some tools. And, and I feel like there's this kind of doom and gloom or sort of inevitability to these stories, these news stories about extinction. It's, of course, you know, tragic and terrible that these extinctions are almost inevitable at this point. But what I what I hold on to is the fact that Were we to start earlier, were we to start protecting species earlier, which is happening in some places, we would have a very good chance at using what we know to keep these species with us. We've done it before. We can do it again.
0: We have done it before. We can do it again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait Five Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show, you've picked a good time to jump in. This conservation season is just getting started. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, go check it out. My guest is such a wonderful person to chat with. You've got to hear it. And if you want to hear more about Frank Chapman, I've talked about him in two episodes. The first is about our bald eagles, and the second was in a couple of footnote stories from the season at the beginning of this year. I talk about how he even came to be this important figure in history so go check those out there's links to those episodes in the description go check them out if you're looking for more wait five minutes i've got just the website for you go to wfmpod.com for transcripts of current episodes additional photographs related to the stories and transcripts from the previous two seasons go check those out for more information and to read along while you listen head to wfmpod.com for more you can now pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparicio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. We've got a Drink More Water sticker, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker, and a sticker featuring the show's subtitle About Florida by Floridian. Grab them individually or as a set of three at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Head to the link in the description to pick up your WFM merch now. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible, and it means a lot to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. You can send me a message at WFMPod at gmail.com. I'm looking for some episodes for this upcoming season at the beginning of next year. If you've got a story you want to hear, let me know. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to Michelle Nyehouse for taking the time to chat with me. Her book, Beloved Beasts, is amazing. So go pick up your copy, give it a read, and learn even more about these fascinating figures in history. It is a great read. I cannot recommend it enough. Thank you to Michelle for her help in this episode. All of the music in this episode was originally composed. Next week, it's the Halloween episode. I'm going to tell you about some of my favorite ghost stories and their surprising relationship to Florida's water. I'm very excited about it. I cannot wait for Halloween to be here, and I cannot wait for you to hear these very spooky stories. Until then, I'm Nick DeLisandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. Please get vaccinated to help support your community, and if it's time to get your booster shots, look into it to help those around you. And of course, Drink more water. Have a good week. I will see you next Monday for our Halloween episode.